Well, hello, everyone. I'm Reverend Carla. Welcome to Spirituality Matters. This is episode six. So let's settle in to find that sacred space between here where I am and there where you are, and be reminded that the holy transcends our physical bodies and our time together is just as sacred and meaningful as if we were sitting beside one another. Okay, let's get started. Today's podcast is titled, The Bible Doesn't Say That. So for my blog this week, I talk about overhearing at a funeral home some of the most outlandish statements. Now, I'm going to admit, I know I have said these at some time or two, but now I cringe that I actually did this. But there's a whole teaching theme that we could do around epic failures in grief support. As a matter of fact, I think I have. And I'll bring it to the podcast um, sooner than later, I think. But I don't want to get distracted about that except to say this. We, and by we I'm primarily speaking to those of us with a Christian heritage, we tend to toss out these phrases as if there is infinite wisdom associated with them. And that infinite wisdom is tied to sacred literature, especially the Bible. And guess what? That's not true in some of the most important ways. So yes, they can be inspired by the Bible. But as is the case with what happens a lot with scripture, these verses are typically taken out of historical context, or they're referring to something else entirely. So we're going to dive into these phrases and see what arises for you. So what I hope we get together for our time together today is just a deeper understanding of why our words matter, and why context matters. We simply need to be more responsible with our words, especially when we are offering words to others as wisdom, advice, or comfort. So in that blog post, I covered three phrases. Uh, One of them is, heaven must have needed an angel. The second one is, God won't give you more than you can handle, and everything happens for a reason. So I'm not going to spend too much time on these phrases here because you can read it in the blog, but the first phrase, uh, it deserves a little bit more space. So let's talk about heaven must have needed an angel. Okay, let me just come right out and say it. Nowhere in scripture does it say that God plucks a human out of this physical existence because God needs to add to the angelic realm. It's just not there. Yes, the Bible talks about angels, and it references humans being in heaven, but how is this phrase helpful when it's said to someone like the parents of a child who just died? I can certainly tell you that I don't worship a God who kills children just to add to the angelic realm. And nowhere does it say that when we die, we are converted to angels. So this is a complete distortion of scripture, and it is often used in a way that's not helpful or comforting. So the second phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle. I actually heard someone tell a young mother whose husband had just been killed in a tragic work accident, and that left her alone with three very young children. This person walked up to her and said, God must love you so much to have you endure so much pain. I'm not even kidding. And I've heard that phrase many times in my, in my past. So I remember the look of confusion on the young mother's face, and then she just quietly responded, thank you. 
So, you know, the person who offered that sentiment, I know they didn't mean any harm. Some of that comes from this fatalism theology where the death of Jesus is equated to our suffering here on earth. That simply isn't true as well. But this woman who was offering the sentiment, she is she was older. So this could very much be a generational thing. So, but, but I'm sure she's tossing out these phrases because even just saying them probably brings her some kind of comfort. And so there was no malice in her heart, but what she didn't see was how the person received it. It made no sense to this young woman who was now going to have to navigate raising three children on her own without her husband. And she didn't understand how that could be equating to God loving her so much. Most people just simply do not find comfort in these phrases when they have immense pain and suffering. So that brings us to the final one that I talk about in my blog, which is everything happens for a reason. So you'll, you'll hear things like it must be their time or God's plan for this, this person. But where do you stop this kind of logic? So if everything happens for a reason, are we really saying that God caused Adam Lanza to open fire and kill 20 first graders in 2012? Did God allow Hitler to come to power so millions of Jewish people would die in the Holocaust? Did God cause the planes to be flown into the World Trade Center towers? Or cause another person to get cancer? Or cause a plane to crash, killing everyone on board? Or does God listen to the prayers of one team to win a game while ignoring the other team? You can't say one, you can't make an exclusion for one type of life circumstance and not another. This phrase just has no basis in comforting someone or in scripture. So the closest place it can come to is Ecclesiastes 3.1. So I'm going to read part of that. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to weep and a time to laugh and a time to mourn and a time to dance. So that goes on longer than that, but you get the idea. But my interpretation of this scripture, however, isn't about everything happening for a reason. This scripture says to me that there is a season for everything. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So in other words, we here, we are here in this physical realm, our souls inhabiting this body, we're having this physical experience. Things don't happen for God's reason. They happen because we are subject to the laws of nature and the actions of other humans while we are here having this human experience. So Adam Lanza murdering 20 children is not part of God's plan. That still remains one of the nation's biggest tragedies. And no doubt those who lost loved ones in that horrible tragedy suffer daily because of that loss. 
What we must try to do is find peace and return to the living after a tragedy, but no doubt they'll never be the same. And oftentimes that is absolutely impossible. I can't imagine the pain, even though that happened in 2012, the pain that those those families are living with. And I can't imagine that any peace comes from them if someone said to them that everything happened for a reason. The problem with this notion or even belief is that this type of thinking removes us or distances us from personal responsibility. We've seen this recently here during the pandemic when people say that they're not going to wear masks because it's their time. If it's their time to die, they're just going to go regardless of what the potential of their mask can do to help other people stay alive, they only see it through the lens of their own personal responsibility because that holds to that theology that things happen for a reason. But if you take that logic to the next levels, and my friends, that's what this is about. You can't take it to the level of your belief. You have to look at this through the context of what exactly it is you're saying. So if you're saying that you don't need a mask, then do you go to doctors? Why do you need doctors? Why do you wear seatbelts? Why don't, why don't you just eat whatever you want or smoke however much you want or drink however much you want? If you believe that, then how are you not taking care of yourself because you just think everything happens for a reason? None of that matters what we do in the physical if God is ultimately in control of everything that happens. But aren't we supposed to treat this human vessel as a temple? Doesn't the Bible say that? Aren't we supposed to care for it with reverence and honor as we do our creator? So this phrase, everything happens for a reason, excuses accountability by allowing us to just shrug off and say, well, God must have a plan because everything everything happens for a reason. And it doesn't. Okay, let's move on here. Let's talk about the next phrase. Money is the root of all evil. Nope, that does not come from the Bible. It's probably coming from a twisted translation of 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, which says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That's certainly different than money is the root of all evil, for the love of money is the root of all, ev- of all kinds of evil. It is not the same. Now, the love of money can catapult us into obsession over not having it. I mean, you can be absolutely obsessed that you don't have it. Maybe you're pretending that you have it. You see that as like a status symbol, especially in this age of social media where you can so easily compare your lives to other people's. And if you don't have money then perhaps you are obsessed with it because if you don't even have it to, to especially take care of your basic needs, whether you can't, don't have enough to put food on the table or to pay rent or take care of your car, all of that can make you obsessed with not having it. But on the other end of it, you can also be obsessed about losing it. So that can put you in a place where you are constantly living in fear. So it's like opposite ends of the spectrum, but it's all about love or obsession of money. So it comes down to you feeling like you have the haves while they have the have-nots or however you look at that, however you are viewing the world, 
if you're viewing it through the, the lack of money or the surplus of money, that's going to change how you view everything around you. So it can also solve some of our most horrid human conditions and the crisis that we have in this earth. So there's not necessarily bad things that can be associated with money. It's about who controls it and how we use it for the good of the whole. All right, so on to the next one. And this is probably one of my least favorite verses. One of my, my favorite, my, my worst favorite, uh, my worst verse of all time is uh, hate the sin, love the sinner. But I'll save that for another time because it's its whole teaching uh, subject. But this phrase is God helps those who helps themselves. God helps those who help themselves. Okay. So Adam Hamilton is another one of my favorite authors. He wrote a book called Half Truths. And I'll link this book in my show notes as well. But this book is about things that the Bible doesn't say and how they are rooted in twisted theology. Adam shares a story in this book about Jay Leno asking people to recite one of the Ten Commandments and how he was amazed at how many people cited God helps those who help themselves as one of the Ten Commandments. I'm going to give you a hint. It is not. But in a, in a survey as well, it showed that 80% of Christian Americans were certain that that phrase was at least in the Bible. Even if it wasn't one of the Ten Commandments, it was least in the Bible. And it's totally false. It is not there. Now, you can find it in history. Ben Franklin used it in the Poor Richard, his Poor Richard's Almanac. But that doesn't make it scripture. It just means it's dogma. And what dogma means, that's just a belief. You know, you can have it or you don't, but it certainly be, shouldn't be something that is a prevailing belief. It, just because you believe it as being true doesn't mean that it is for everyone, especially when it doesn't exist in Scripture. So let's look at the outliers of this phrase. Of course, let's just say you don't study for an exam, but, a, but instead you decide to pray hard to get a good grade. My guess is you're not going to get grade, a good grade, and if God is not responsible for that outcome. You didn't help yourself, and you're probably going to fail that test. And there's no way God's going to drop the wisdom into your head unless some kind of miracle. I don't, I don't believe it. But also, if you're not paying your bills and you're living irresponsibly and not save, save, uh, saving your money, that also is going to be in a place where you're not helping yourself. So is it fair for you to be looking for some kind of divine intervention or for other people to step up to help you when you're not meeting the expectations of what you should do to live responsibly? So this, but this phrase can even be more toxic than that because yes, those two, those two situations show the outliers of how like that's an extreme, like you, you go decide to party and then you are going to go take a test and just pray for the best. Of course, we know that's probably not going to be a desired outcome. But on the other side of this is that part about being toxic and it allows you, the speaker of this phrase, you get to be the judge and jury over another individual. So you get to deem another human worthy of grace 
or help if you don't think that they are helping themselves enough. And that's always a dangerous situation to be. We already have so many places in our society where people are judge and jury over people. That's why this phrase needs to be given up, especially when it has no biblical context. So my feeling is we all, including Christians, need to give this phrase up because it was never meant to be in our wheelhouse. We are focused, laser focused on where scripture seems to be inviting you to be the judge and jury when in reality, that's the last thing we should be worrying about. Because the Bible speaks of grace. And the model Jesus left us was a ministry filled with compassion for fellow humans. Jesus was pushing back on religious establishments that separated the human-derived condition. So in other words, he didn't want us to live in the worthy, the unworthy, the haves, the have-nots, deserving of grace or not deserving of grace. Jesus offered grace to everyone. So how in the world does that align with God helps those that help themselves, especially when you realize it has no scriptural basis. Romans 8.10 says, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that there's no, there's no exceptions in that phrase. It's for all of us. God's grace is for all of us. So let's get a little bit more uncomfortable about judgment and let's just pause here a minute and speak about human rights because this would be a phrase that's brought up quite often when we're talking about people who we feel are undeserving of help. So where people who want to help themselves, truly want to help themselves, have been forced to the outer edges of society. So some now some people may be uncomfortable with this and stop this podcast right now, but when we look at the history in this country and how we have created a situation where the black people have not had the same opportunities as some white people have, and they've been forced to the outer edges of society, not that they're not more that as, as capable, as smart, as passionate, Everything, every skill that we have, they have, but if they don't have the social construct, they don't have the education, they don't have the access to the, to the physical facilities for, to promote good health and athleticism, there's a wide chasm there. So how can we say that they can help, that God doesn't help those who help themselves when we're not on equal playing fields? So that's part of also the white Christian narrative that we need to look at and our contribution to how this country was set up. And I know that every time I bring this up, I lose a few followers, but that makes way for the people who are here to actually follow me because it's the truth. There's not, there's, this, is, this is factual. We know how uh, Christianity impacted slavery, and we know how that trickled into some of the laws that were made, especially during the Civil Rights Movement. So this leads to a situation where beliefs are rooted in bias, and they, that certainly has no place in our religious or spiritual traditions. Okay, we have time for one more phrase during this podcast, so I've chosen this phrase, and this too shall pass. 
So this phrase is often used to encourage the long suffering, to remind us that we'll get through this dark tunnel even if right now we can't see the light at the end of that tunnel. And I think it's the it's captured beautifully and quite entertainingly in the mantra that Dory and Nemo would what was using just keep swimming just keep swimming it's about just keep going because whatever you're going through whatever your life experience it is this too shall pass but so even though there might be some wisdom inside that phrase it is not scriptural there is a folklore tale about King Solomon requesting a ring be made for him and that when he looked at that ring, it was a reminder to him that all things too shall pass away. So hold on to that thought because that's very different than this too shall pass. But I want to read something by President Abraham Lincoln and how he used that phrase. This was from a uh, a a speech that he gave in 1859. It is said an Eastern monarch once charged his wise man to invent him a sentence, to be ever in view and which should be true and appropriate in all times and situations. They presented him the words, and this too shall pass away. How much it expresses, how chastening in the hour of pride, how consoling in the depths of affliction. End quote. Okay, so 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18 might be the closest that we can come to finding some kind of affiliation to Scripture. And those two verses say, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not at what can be seen, but what, at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary but what cannot be seen is eternal. In other words, friends, if we are applying scriptural context to this phrase, this phrase is a prophetic reminder that life passes away and nothing stays the same. So in my experience, this phrase is often used as almost like a simplified reminder or as an encourager to just to say, you're going to get through this because this too shall pass. So it's very singular in its experience. You're going through something hard and this too shall pass. It gave the example of uh, Coach Mike Ditka. I think he was released from um, his coaching position and his only response was, and this too shall pass. So, and then the writer of the article was saying that he actually misused it because that's not what it was about. And so when you go back and you look at what this is about and about this phrase's history in Eastern thought about all things passing away, it's more accurate to, to use this teaching as a reminder about how fleeting life is, how fragile our lives are, and how since if nothing stays the same, then how important it is to take a moment to be in this moment and be present in our lives. Now, there are so many more phrases, and I've included some information in the show notes, so be sure to uh, read through these resources because you can also get uh, Google something like things people say that aren't in the Bible or say uh, things people say that Christians say that aren't in the uh, Bible.
it is actually quite funny and fascinating in some of those things. And also, uh, I'll link Adam Hamilton's book, Half Truth, so you can find that as well. And remember, the reason we are doing this, the reason why we visited with these phrases is to become more mindful about the things we say, their origin and how they are perceived by others. There are many other ways to be present and helpful to others, but offering these trite phrases that have no scriptural or inspirational context is simply not one of those ways. It is time for us to be respectful and mindful and understand that our words matter. Sometimes what we say to people reflects more about our values and our belief system than anything else. But more importantly, it also reflects our ability to cue in on what a situation is calling for versus what we just pull out of our resource bag and and throw words at a situation that have absolutely no relevance and leaves a void of compassion and communication and opportunity for connection and dialogue between you and the outside world. And blessed be and amen. Okay, at the end of each podcast, I take a question. And this one is pretty loaded, my friends, but it's time for me to answer this. Someone has asked me if I am pro-choice or pro-life. And I'm going to start this by saying that I am neither. I am pro-human. I would also like to say that if you are specifically talking about being against abortion, in other words, anti-abortion, then that doesn't necessarily mean that you are pro-life. So I'm going to answer this question from my human experience because every person's experience is different. But when I became pregnant at 16 years old, I had an amazing support system in my mother. I had no idea what was going to happen. But because I had that support system, I knew I was going to carry my child. I don't want to use my experience and say that's the same for other people. I don't want to have the right to control what happens with another woman's body because I know that there are different situations depending on a woman's circumstances. I'm also reminded that throughout history, not just where we are now, but throughout history, women have controlled their bodies by using herbs and medicinal ways that were available to them, some of them very harsh and dangerous and cruel, to end pregnancies at a time when they simply could not support or have options to carry a child to full term if it meant that the family would be under immense financial uh, conditions or if it was going to mean starvation. And that was very much the reality at the time. So abortion has been with us far longer than where we are in our society right now, specifically with Roe v. Wade. I'm also reminded 
that there is very much a religious affiliation with the decisions surrounding Roe versus Wade and the opposition to it. But the very people who oppose it are the ones who actually seek abortion in private. And if you don't believe me, I'll link to my show notes an article from 2017, which the one I'm uh, linking to is from US News, but you can go Google it. If you Google Tim Murphy, announces retirement after pressuring girlfriend to get abortion. This was a congressman from Pennsylvania who was very much a staunch advocate for anti-abortion. He, wor- he worked tirelessly to bring anti-abortion legislation to Congress and to his state. And yet when his, girl- his mistress, 35 years his junior, became pregnant, He encouraged her to get an abortion. I do not accept this type of hypocrisy very well because a man who's touting himself as a self-righteous advocate of life but using his personal life to take advantage of a system that would make it convenient for him to continue to stay in power and tell you what what to do with your body while at the same time using that to limit his girlfriend and her right to make a choice on her own. So the reason I say there's a difference between being pro-life and anti-abortion is because pro-life would mean that you more align with pro-human, which is what I am, and that means that you care about the the children that are born. You care about the humans who don't have health care. You care about the humans who don't have homes. You care about the people who can't pay their bills. You care about the people who are your fellow Americans, who are your fellow brothers and sisters, regardless of their color of their skin, where they live, who they love, and what they believe. So there is no such thing as pro-life if your only agenda is anti-abortion. I am pro-human, and I do not want to give up that right to women to have their rights to their body. Do I personally believe that I could have an abortion? I don't want to put myself in that kind of situation because I'm almost 59 years old. And that no longer is a situation that is relatable to me. But brothers and sisters, we have far more greater situations that are um, facing this country than just this one issue. And it breaks my heart that people are making their political choices based on that one issue. But as soon as the child is born, that mother has no resources available to feed, clothe, and care for that child. I am pro-human, and I care for that child once it is born. Okay, beloveds, I'm honored to be in this space with you, and I pray you receive something. I know I did because the teacher teaches what she needs to hear. And now, beloveds, go in peace and be at peace. Go in love, and may you be loved, and may you give love. Go and know that others are on this journey with you, and you are not alone. Blessings on your week, and I will see you soon. Bye for now. If you like what you heard today, be sure to like and subscribe to Spirituality Matters wherever you listen to podcasts. To submit questions to Rev Carla, email us at spiritualitymatters at revcarla.com. 
Follow at Rev Carla on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Pinterest for more spirituality teachings. Check out her blog posts on RevCarla.com and go ahead and sign up for email alerts while you're there so you don't miss a thing. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.